This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. And so Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for us. Therefore, uh, for this reason, Paul said, I gladly suffer all these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I am, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have uh, committed to him until that day. Before we open God's word today, let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we're thankful that we have a Savior who has paid the full penalty for sin. He said it is finished, it is complete. He said it in a way that was final. It meant that nothing could be added, nothing, nothing ought to be added, and we can't help in any way, shape, or form without ruining the gift. It is ours by simply faith in Him, trusting Him, that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do to redeem us from our sins, to provide forgiveness. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the uniqueness of who we are, of all believers throughout the ages in the church, that we are reminded today in our passage that we, ha- we are finite creatures with a finite amount of time that you have given us, and that we are to use that time wisely. So, Father, we pray that today that we would be uh, open to understand what the Scripture says, and it might challenge us in some new ways as we order our lives in a way that will bring glory to you and increase our effectiveness as those who serve you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're moving into the next section. It is Ephesians 5, uh, 15 is where it starts, but this is a long section, and it goes all the way down to 6, 9. This is the last walk command as we get into this section. Now, in the last few weeks, we were focusing on the previous walk command, which is that we are to walk as children of light. 1 John 1.7 speaks of the same thing. And 1 John 1.7 we read that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, that's really a significant statement, and I'm reminding you of this because as we get into verse, uh, as we get into verse 17 and 18, where we're talking about what it means to be filled by means of the Spirit, 
we're going to be taking a lot of time to understand this. And I'm going to be drawing a lot of connections because we live in an era where every few, gener- every few not generation, every few decades, there are those who come along and say things like, well, we really don't need to confess sin. First John 1, 7 says that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so we don't need to do that. And actually, this this position now has been given another name. It's called hypergrace. We believe in free grace, but this is called hypergrace. Another name for it is antinomianism. Now, that may be a word that's a little big for some of you, and it just means you're against the law. You're against any mandates that, that we can basically just do whatever we want to do, sin however we wish to sin, and the blood of Christ just automatically cleanses us from those sins. That was what the Apostle Paul was reacting to in Romans 6, 1, when he says, uh, if grace has abounded, does that mean that we can sin so grace will abound even more? And he said, may that never be. It was really a very strong negative. But we see this cropping up every now and then. And it's a result of a lot of theological ignorance, uh, people who haven't put things together, and they say things like, well, the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned anywhere in 1 John 1, so how can you connect forgiveness of sin with uh, walk by the Holy Spirit? And then you have others who say, well, how do you deal with this? Uh, if if it, the, blood, uh, the blood of Christ, which we know means just the death of Christ, if that cleanses us from all sin, then that's automatic. And then my reply to that is, well, if that's all there is to it, then why do we have 1 John 1, 9, two verses later that says that we are to confess sin? And because when we get into these passages that we... Uh, don't automatically see all of the verbiage that we have put together. It's important to remind us every now and then that when we, that God gave His Word a little here, a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept, and it's up to us to read through the Scriptures as they are revealed and to put things together and to recognize these things. So that's what what we're doing, and I'm just giving you a little bit of a head, heads up here because we have words like fellowship in both passages, both here uh, as we look at um, verse 11 and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So fellowship is definitely a part of uh, walking, um, walking in the light or walking as a child of the light. And we are not to have a partnership with those works of darkness. 1 Corinthians 15.33, uh, which we briefly looked at, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. So we are that led to a study of the biblical teaching on separation. And so what the passage we just finished concluded is that there are believers who have succumbed and they walk uh, in darkness, and they are being told in that last verse that they are to wake up. And this doesn't mean they're spiritually dead. It means they're spiritually lazy and they're sleeping instead of living their Christian life. And that is the focus there, that they are not spiritually dead when it reads arise from the dead, but they're living like a spiritually dead person. And so they are to wake up and 
uh, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And that's the, basically a command that reiterates the same concept that we live in our lives in times we are walking in darkness more often than we would like to admit, and that we have to make a volitional decision. We have to conscientiously turn from it. And that's basically all that repent means. It means to turn. It doesn't mean to have sorrow for your sins. It doesn't mean to get emotional or have remorse. It means to change direction, and we constantly uh, constantly have to, have to do that. So th- all of this is within the context of five walking commands that are in, started in chapter 4, verse 1. And this is the fifth one. And this takes us, covers what follows, down to 6, 9. So the first command was to walk worthy, walk in a manner that is consistent with our new calling, that is our new vocation. We have a calling in Christ. Every single believer does. And we are to walk according to the standard of that calling. And so that is the first command, and I think an overriding one. I think the other commands all define what that worthy walk looks like. We're to walk consistent with our new identity in Christ. That's the next walking command in Ephesians 4.17, that we are to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. As we've studied in Ephesians, there are biblically three kinds of people. There aren't all these different races and ethnicities. There's three kinds of people. There are unsaved Jews. There are unsaved Gentiles. And there's the church. And when we trust Christ as Savior, as Jew or Gentile, we are brought together in this new entity called the body of Christ. That is the new man as Paul defined it in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 14 through 16, this new man, this new body, this new building, this new temple, all of those are just metaphors to describe who we are now that we are in Christ. And so once that happens, we're not to live the way we lived, not to think the way we thought, not to act the way we acted, not to say a lot of the things that we said before. There's a difference But it takes the rest of our lives to really see any progress in that, frankly. Some people progress a little more because they recognize from the very beginning that they really want to pursue this. Others, it takes them some time. The challenge is that it should be taking a lot less time. That's why Paul was reprimanding the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians three years after he was there. He said, I thought I could write to you as spiritually mature believers, but not so. Three years. Now, spiritual maturity, just like physical maturity, uh, takes time to develop once we're there. Just because you reach a level of maturity at 20 doesn't mean that you don't advance to a greater level of maturity at 30 or 40 or 70 or 80. It, we have levels of maturity, but we should get past infancy and babyhood and adolescence within two or three years, and begin to really grow and mature so that we can serve the Lord. That's part of our purpose. We weren't saved to go on living according to our pleasures. We were saved in order to serve the Lord. And in order to serve the Lord, we have to come to understand what God has revealed to us about the Christian way of life. 
So the third command is to walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us. We have to come to understand the gospel in terms of what actually occurred in history, the development of God's gospel plan, and at the cross, the culmination of the work of salvation. And the more we study it, the more we should be amazed at who God is and what he has provided for us. And that awe that we develop should increase from week to week and month to month and year to year and drive us more and more to a recognition of our new identity, our new calling, and serving him. And so we are to emulate the love that Christ demonstrated by dying on the cross for our sins, taking us back to his command to in John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as he loved us, and that this would be the mark of us being not a believer, but a disciple, that we have love for one another. So we are to walk in love as the third command, and as the fourth command, we're to walk as children of light, which is what we've been studying the last several weeks, Ephesians 5.8. You once were darkness. That was our position before we were saved. But now we are light in the Lord. That's that new identity. That's part of our calling. That's what it means to be the new man. We are light in the Lord. But a lot of times we don't live like it. First John 1 7 recognizes that, that we can walk, or 1 6 and 7 recognizes that we can walk in darkness. Now there's a lot of theological positions out there and a lot of churches that say, well, if you're walking in darkness, you're not really saved. Well, if you believe that, you don't really understand the Scriptures, and you don't understand grace, that Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all on the cross, and believers can commit just as many sins and just as heinous of sins as unbelievers can because they aren't walking in the light. They are walking in the darkness, and so that's what John is correcting. He says, you need to walk as uh, Paul says, you need to walk as children of light, and John says that uh, we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. So now we come to the fifth command, which has to do with walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. In Ephesians 5.15, we read, So then that you see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, one of the things that I hope you've noticed, which is not obvious to many of the people who would disagree with what I'm teaching, is that these are mutually exclusive positions. You're either A or you're not A. You're either B or you're not B. You're either walking in darkness or you're walking in the light. You're either walking in wisdom or you're walking like a fool. You are e either... Uh, walking worthy or you're not walking worthy. You're either walking in humility or you're not walking in humility. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. And the spiritual life is not a life of following a set of rules. 
Though there are mandates and there are prescriptions for the Christian life, the motivation isn't to make sure we check off all of the right boxes every day. The motivation is we want to serve the Lord and that if we live according to the way he says to live, then we will be more effective in doing that. We will be able to honor our position as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 5.15 sets the stage for everything that comes after it. As part of working, uh, walking circumspectly, we will be commanded uh, to be filled by means of the Spirit. This is a command that is in the passive voice. It means that we we don't actively do anything other than choose to be filled. We receive this filling. We've got to talk about that. Why is that in in a, a passive command? There's a following that. There are some characteristics of the person who is walking by or who is being filled by means of the Spirit. There's an emphasis on worship through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in Ephesians 5.19. We express our gratitude to God for all things, the bad things as well as the good things. And as I was reading through uh, Bertha Spafford's book, as she was talking about her parents and what they wrote following uh, the loss of their children, uh, Anna wrote, how can we accept the good things from God and not accept what we perceive to be the bad things, the harsh things, the difficult times? Because they all come from God, and so we are to learn to live for him no matter what may happen in this world. And that is in light of what she went through. That is, for some people, they think, oh, I could never do that. Well, of course you can never do that in your power and in the flesh. It is a work of God, the Holy Spirit, that takes us to a level of maturity where we begin to realize that. Does that mean that the sorrow and the loss goes away? No. But it means that you can surmount that and have the joy of the Lord, which isn't some kind of giddy happiness, but is a mindset of stability and tranquility and contentment. And so we are grateful to God for all things because we know, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. God is working them together to eventually lead us to the point where we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That is such a powerful passage. Just last week I had some questions that were texted to me about... Uh, somebody was talking to someone who believed in predestination. We all believe in predestination, but you have to understand what Romans 8.29 is talking about. It is not being talked, it is not talking about God who is choosing who will go to heaven and who will go to the lake of fire. That is not what it's talking about. It's talking to believers because the context is Romans 8. When did we talk about salvation in Romans? Going to heaven, actually, justification, reconciliation. That's Romans 3, 4, and 5. In Romans 6, there's a shift to the spiritual life. And 6, 7, and 8, those three chapters talk about the spiritual life. So Romans 8, 28, and 29 
are not in the justification reconciliation section of Romans. They're in the spiritual life section of Romans. And so what Paul is saying is that um, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, for whom he called, he justified, goes through the whole list and ends up, and he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is spiritual life truth has nothing to do with who's going to go to heaven and who's not going to go to heaven. That God, it's predestined, it's, it's a good word, but people have, have destroyed its meaning. It means that God has a destiny for every church age believer that he determined ahead of time. What's that destiny? That destiny is not salvation. It's the spiritual life maturation to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so what is happening in Romans 8, 28, and 29 is that we are reminded that whatever takes place in our life, God is working it together for good to bring us into conformity with the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we're not walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, uh, walking in love, then God's going to be working, we're going to be working against God because he wants to take us into conformity with Christ and we want to stay conformed to the world. And so we have to make that adjustment. So the one result of being filled by means of the Spirit is worship through singing. Another is uh, gratitude to God. A third is mutual submission to live in harmony. We are to submit to one another in love. Ephesians 5.21. And then from that, he transitions into talking about family life. This is one of the most significant sections of Scripture, talking about the third divine institution of the family, marriage and the family, in Ephesians 5.22 to 6.9. So that gives us an understanding of where we're going in this, in this section. This is the last walk command, and uh, he's going to develop this out even further in the rest of this chapter in the first nine verses of the next chapter. So when we start off in our passage and looking at Ephesians uh, 5, uh, 15, 16, 17, and 18, I'm just I'm going to lump those together. But I want you to notice that that 5:18, the the main clause ends with the command to be filled with or by means of the Spirit. So, and then the results of that are what are described. As you go on uh, in the subsequent verses, uh, 19, 20, uh, 21, complete that sentence. They're describing the results of uh, being filled by means of the Spirit. So we look at this verse, and one of the things that we should observe at the beginning is that there are uh, these commands that are here. And we have one command in the two verses we're looking at this morning, and that's translated as C. And then we have uh, a negative or a prohibition at the beginning of verse 17, uh, do not be unwise. And I didn't highlight the word, but understand is a positive command. 
So we have a negative, then a positive. We learn by means of contrast. On the one hand, don't be unwise, but on the other hand, understand what the will of the Lord is. And we'll talk about that. People get real confused about how do I know God's will for my life? And some people think, well, God's going to give you this supernatural peace. And so you sort of get this little uh, liver quiver and your little uh, buzz inside your soul, and that's how you're going to know. No, it's not. That's how pagans operate. That's how postmoderns operate because they look for truth in feeling and in emotion and not in objective, rational thought. And so we have to understand that we know what the will of the Lord is. It's contained in 66 books of the Scripture, 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books, and he has given us a sufficient revelation so we don't have to look elsewhere to solve the problems of life. Now think about what that means. Starting in the 19th century, there were all kinds of new developments on how to solve the problems of life. You had the rise of Darwinism and Marxism, and you had the rise of Freudianism and psychology. And when people uh, have a problem in life, they think, well, we need to go to counseling. No, you need to go to church. You need to get the Word of God. You need to understand uh, where your problems come from. They don't come from... The, the fact that your parents didn't like you, they came because you as a sinner responded wrongly to the fact that your parents didn't like you. And so now you have to learn how to respond to God, and once you learn how to do that and apply the Word, that doesn't mean your problems will go away, but it gives you tools to be able to handle those problems. And so we are not to be foolish. A foolish person in Scripture is a person who operates on the pagan worldview, uh, operates on unbelief. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And I've asked the question of quite a few. Is, a fool, is he a fool because he said there is no God, or does he say there is no God because he's a fool? Go home and think about that. So when we get into those two verses, the contrast, the negative, don't be unwise. The positive, understand what the will of the Lord is. The negative, don't be drunk with wine. Now, what does that mean? Why is that particular statement put in there? And we'll have to look at that. That's a culturally relevant statement. We have to understand what that meant to the Ephesians, and to that area that Paul was writing to. And he says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled. And we have to really take some time on this, be filled with the Spirit. Because that English prepositions are really funny things. And so you can... uh, you can be telling somebody, Go fill up my coffee cup with that pot over there because that's the decaf. Fill it with that. That's talking about content. And a lot of people talk, will, will say, well, you, you get more of the Spirit. No, you don't. The Holy Spirit indwelt every single believer at the instant of salvation that ne- neither increases nor decreases throughout the rest of your spiritual life. Uh, this isn't talking about content, wrong, wrong grammar. 
Content is indicated with a genitive clause. This is a dative clause that indicates means. So it should be translated, be filled by means of the Spirit. But Paul doesn't tell us what the content is here. We're going to have to explore that. And what about these other phrases that talk about a person being uh, filled with the Spirit and wisdom or, or other things like that that are character descriptions that we find in Acts? So we're going to have to drill down. And the reason is is because there's so much sloppy thinking. There's so much uh, thinking that is influenced by other theological systems related to the spiritual life. And there's a lot of confusion, so we're, we're going to need to make sure we uh, have that squared away. So if we chart it out in 17 and 18, the negatives are don't be unwise and don't be drunk. Again, it's a dative. It's don't be drunk by means of wine. It's not talking about the content, but using it as a means of spirituality. In contrast, we're to understand the word there has to do with thinking. The spiritual life and the growth of a Christian is related to what we think and learning. It's not emotion. It's not feeling. So we go back to our passage for today. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, when we look at some translations, some translations will start verse 15 with a therefore. Therefore usually indicates a conclusion. And as a matter of fact, the Greek word that is used here is a prepos- or the, uh, uh, the um, uh, particle un, which in- usually the first primary use is to indicate a conclusion. But its second use is to transition from one t- topic to the next topic. The overall topic of the passage starting back in Ephesians 4.1, has to do with walking. But he says different things about walking as we go through it. So he's just, he has finished with this this um, a quotation in verse 14, and now he's going to come back to the next walking command. So it should be translated. I think the New King James uh, translates it well. See then that you walk circumspectly. Circumspectly is one of those words we use every day, right? What does that mean? We have a kind of a vague idea of what it means to be circumspect, but we need to look at that. But before we get there, we're going to have to understand this initial command. It is translated in the New King James with the word see, which is a fairly decent translation of the Greek word blepo. I remember about a, I think I had a fourth grade Sunday school teacher named Sterling Laird who said, blepo is like a blip. You just see it like a blip. Well, that's not quite what it means. It is to, to, to really look at something, to pay attention to something. And so its literal meaning is to look, to see, to look at something, to examine something. But figuratively, it comes to mean watch out or beware of something or to pay close attention to something. So we have a word here that starts off with the idea of pay close attention to something. 
And the reason I say that is you have some different translations, and we'll get into this a little bit more in just a minute. But this is a present active imperative. Now, a lot of times people say, well, why do you talk about those things? Well, the grammar is important. And a lot of times I don't bring things out grammatically if they're not that important. We just don't go to places just to show off that we can parse a word. Any computer can parse these words for you. But a present imperative means that this is, a, is a, supposed to be a standard operating procedure in a person's life, just a, a command. It's something that you should always be doing. And so the present tense operates differently if it's not in the indicative. So the idea there is just that you continuously are characterized by this. And the active voice means that it's addressed to you. You need to do this. You need to make the choice to be doing this. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility to do this. A passive verb means that the subject receives the action. We'll talk about that more when we have be filled by means of the Spirit. That's where the, the subject receives the action of the verb. But here the subject performs the action of the verb. So that means that each one of us is responsible for living our lives, that's the what walking describes, in a certain manner, a circumspect uh, manner. And so this relates to how we think and how we talk and how we act, And uh, but we need to pay attention to it. So this takes us then to the uh, next verb, pay attention that you walk. Circumspectly. Now, there's not really a that clause in the Greek, but i am tr- got to get this into the English in a way that can make sense. So pay attention then that you walk. And this is just a way of an idiom for how a person lives, their, their, li- their lifestyle, uh, their Christian way of life. We're to live a certain way, think a certain way, uh, and act a certain way, talk a certain way. Everything changes as when we become believers. So it's how a person thinks, talks, and acts. Now we get into into the weeds a little bit and into some details. We've got the word that is uh, translated circumspectly, and it's the word akribos in the Greek. That omega s at the end tells us it's an adverb. Now, an adverb modifies a noun, right? No. That's why it's called an adverb, not an ad noun. Okay? So it modifies a verb. So the question is, what verb is it modifying? And this is, uh, this is where we get into some stuff in, in the weeds here. Um, does it mean to um, if it has the idea of walk carefully or observing carefully how you walk, then when we... Wait a minute. I'm trying to get my cursor back over here. Okay. There, we're good. All right. So um, the circumspectly could modify blepo, the ver- first verb, or it could modify to walk, the second verb. How do we do that? Well, what's interesting is in the what we call the critical text, there's a one-word order, two words, and then they're flip-flopped in the majority text. Now, the majority text is called that because that's the reading that's in the majority of documents. 
But you don't just make that decision based on that alone. You have to think it through. And so if if blepo means to pay it close attention to something, then you wouldn't modify it with acribos because then you would be redundant. You've already met pay close attention by using the word blepo. And so it makes better sense to have acribos modifying walking that we are the point here is as uh, dr honer his commentary of, of ephesians says and he's not a fan of the majority text but he says it's the better reading contextually because uh the point is not how carefully we observe our walk but how carefully we walk Understand that? It's not about how carefully we look at our walking, but how carefully we walk. And that is the main idea here. But if you have the Revised Version, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the NASB, the uh, New English Bible, the ESV, the NRSV, the NET, or the Holman, it will use this to modify the main verb. But it doesn't really make that much sense. You get a redundancy, which isn't there, uh, really there in, in, in the Greek. So we are to walk carefully. We're to live our lives carefully. We're to pay attention that we live our life carefully, not just kind of randomly bouncing off whatever events come our way but we are to be conscientious and thoughtful about what we are doing. And then it concludes by saying, not as fools, but as wise. The wise person is going to pay careful attention to how he thinks, how he acts, how he lives his life. The fool isn't. The fool is just going to randomly live according to his, his emotions and his whims and whatever makes him feel good at the moment and um, and and whatever seems to be the way to get along with everybody else. So we are not to be fools. We are to be wise. These are absolute categories. It's not being a little wise and a little fool, foolish. The wisdom comes from Scripture. And we looked at uh, Psalm 90. Psalm 90 connects the person who pays attention to the number of days God has allotted to us as as wisdom. Wisdom is an Old Testament concept. This isn't a Greek concept. Just because the New Testament is written in Greek doesn't mean the terminology of Greek culture or Greek philosophy or the or classical Greek is the primary meaning. The primary meaning is going to come from the Old Testament. All of the writers of Scripture thought in Hebrew. That was their primary language. That was their first language. And they thought in Hebrew, and they thought theologically according to Hebrew concepts, not according to concepts of Greek philosophy. And so when you get to wisdom, wisdom isn't abstract thinking about metaphysics and epistemology and ethics, uh, which were the uh, realms of thought from Plato and Aristotle and others. But wisdom is the skillful application of truth in the scriptures. 
the word that is used there is chokma, and it relates to the uh, physical skill that God gave uh, Bezalel and Aholiab. They were the head of the the woodworking and the metalworking guilds that were making all of the ornaments and all of the furniture for the tabernacle. And it says that God gave them chokhmah. See, this isn't a just a mental abstract type of wisdom. It is a skill at doing something. And so when we are to walk as wise and not as fools, we have to know the word so that we can skillfully apply it. And that is done by redeeming the time. We have to pay attention to time management. It's a participle. It's a present participle, and it indicates means. It's adverbial. It is explaining the command. How, do, how in the world do we walk circumspectly? You do it by redeeming the time because the days are evil. We live in an evil world, and we are pressured to conform our priorities to the priorities of the cosmic system around us. And so we are to redeem the time, Scripture says. This is echoed in Colossians 4, verse 5, which says, Walk by means of wisdom toward those who are outside, that is, those who are unbelievers, by redeeming the time, making the same statement, echoes the same thought. And the Bible says a lot about time. The Bible says a lot about money, and the Bible says a lot about how we use uh, use our time. So what are just some basic things that the Bible teaches about wise management of time? First of all, we have to recognize that the time that we have on earth is a limited, finite resource. Psalm 90 talks about this and talks about how we should evaluate this. We look at Psalm 90, verse 10, says the days of our lives are 70 years. That's not an absolute statement. That's just generally true. We're going to live around 70 years. And if by strength, then maybe 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. And I'm not going to have anybody raise hands, but however old you are, you kind of look back to the time when you were young, and it was, seemed like yesterday. The time's just flown by. And, and much of that time, if we're honest, wasn't really spent on what we know are biblical priorities. And too often we made the wrong decisions. Verse 11 says, Who knows the power of your anger, talking about God's divine discipline in time, for is the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us. The prayer is to God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now somebody did a mathematical calculation on a, on a, 12, on, on a clock. We have 24 hours in a day. And so if you were to begin your day at 7 a.m., that would be when you're 15 years old. And then, uh, uh, no, excuse me, that you, your, your day would begin at 7 a.m. If your age is 15, the time is 10.25 a.m. If your age is 25, the time is now 12.42 p.m. If you're 35, the time is 3 p.m. If you're 45, the time is 5.16 p.m. 
If you're 55, the time is 7.34 p.m. If you're 65, the time is 9.55 p.m. And if you're 70, the time is 11 p.m. You've gone through 23 hours. Now you have one to go. Okay. So the days of our lives are 70 years. Red Arnold Fruchtenbaum's biography, which is Chosen Fruit, it's great. So when what he did was when he was in seminary, it was real popular on Campus Crusade people, I think, had this little thing called, I think it was called a five-star diary, and it was a little pocket calendar diary, and you could keep everything. Arnold sat down, and he figured out what his age was at that time, and that if he lived to 70, how many years and how many days and how many hours he would have till he reached 70. And he wrote that down at the top of the page for that day. The next day, he subtracted one from each of those things, and so he could track it. When he reached 70, he was still in good health, and he said, well, maybe the Lord will give me 10 years. So then he revised it and said, okay, I've got 3,650 days to go. How am I going to use those days for the Lord? Now I think he's 82 or 83, and he's living on borrowed time. And his production the last few years in terms of commentaries has been just unbelievable. But that's because he has measured the time, measured the days, defined his priorities according to looking at those times. Now, that's one way to do that. Um, some that I'm not saying, pre, I'm not prescribing that. But that's one way to make an application there. A second passage that gives us some uh, focal point is our priorities. How we manage our time reflects our priorities. And I, I, I was always kind of a slow learner behind the curve as I was, as I was growing up. I just did what I had to do to get done as best I could, whatever, without a plan or a structure. And I remember I was probably a junior. I discovered I had a brain between my sophomore and junior year and it was fun to use it. And, um, and so I started paying a little more attention to structure and how I was making decisions and organizing my day. But it wasn't really until I was, I went up to visit Randy Price. Uh, he was in his first semester at Dallas, probably, probably a month in. And we were talking about seminary life. He said, Robbie, the most important issue for every student is how they organize their time and how they select their priorities. The di- he said, everybody who gets into Dallas Seminary, see, back then there would be 2,000 applicants and, and only 200 would get accepted. He said, everyone here is brilliant. Everyone here can do all of the work. The difference is how they can manage their time. He said, now, some of the guys are married and they have kids, and so they have less time they can spend on their studies, and they do the best they can with what God's given them. Others, at that time Randy was was single, said others are not married, so they have more time, and they can structure it differently. Others have to work, and so that limits the time they can spend on their studies. Every student at Dallas Seminary can make straight A's, but what makes a difference is how they use their time. That was just like a blinding flash of the obvious for me. 
And so I went back and I started looking at how I structured my day every day, and I would uh, I would lay out a plan where I would spend two hours a day on about four different topics of study. And my first teaching job, and I didn't like it, but the Lord said, "You just sit back and relax. I've got a plan." And that I was an in-school suspension teacher. I had all the lovely junior high kids. But most of the time, there were only about three or four, five kids, and I could face them in a room, you know, not quite this big because it was out in the shop, and I would stick a kid in each corner. And I'd sit up there, and in a year, I read through all seven volumes of Chafer's Systematic Theology. I read commentaries on Ezekiel and Isaiah and on Genesis. And I read through every textbook I was going to be required to read my first year at Dallas Seminary. But I had learned something about the importance of managing time. And a big verse for me at that time was Matthew 6.33, but seek first. That word first is the same word we had the other night in our study in Romans 1.16. It's a priority word. The kingdom of God. Now, there's, we've talked about this before. Kingdom of God in Matthew 6 is in the framework of Jesus' message to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so it's talking technically about the millennial kingdom because that's what he's teaching his disciples. This is what your focal point is here. But, of course, we know that that changed and the message changed after he was rejected as Messiah. I'm getting tired of hearing people talk about doing this for the kingdom and that for the kingdom and this other thing for the kingdom. Read Ephesians 2, 12 to 24. We're doing it for the church, for the body of Christ, for the bride of Christ. We are not doing anything for the kingdom. We are doing it for the church in this church age, and we've got to be talking like that. Sorry, I had to get on my hobby horse there for a minute. So we have to evaluate our priorities. Luke 2.52 says, gives us a little bit of a framework describing Jesus. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So we have four categories. Wisdom, that is skillful living on the basis of the Word of God. He was not only taught through the various uh, levels of training for every Jewish kid, where he was at different stages as he grew older, and when he was five, he read, he was reading uh, scripture. When he was ten, they would start teaching through the uh, rabbinical traditions, things of that nature. He got that in the synagogue school and in the home. But we're also told in the Psalms that he was, or in Isaiah rather, that he was taught by his father. So God the Father taught him. So he developed skillful living. That relates to our spiritual life and spiritual growth. He grew in his stature, physical growth, nourishment, exercise. When we're planning out our day, there needs to be time for exercise. There needs to be time for eating. There needs to be time for sleeping. When you start adding all of these things together, that takes up a big chunk of our 24 hours. And in favor with God, that is continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our spiritual life, and favor with men. And that relates to being involved with other people. This means eventually you're probably going to be married, you're going to have children. All of those things are going to change the way in which you structure and order your your time. And the more responsibilities you have with your career, 
the more responsibilities you have because you're having 9, 10, 15 children, the less time you're going to have. I always remember Susanna Wesley, the mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. She couldn't get away from She had like 12 or 14 kids. She couldn't get away from them, so she'd get in the corner and she'd pull her. They wore lots of petticoats back then. She'd pull her skirt up over her head, and that would be her quiet time. And she would be in prayer, and that was a signal to everybody to leave her alone. So we have to learn how to discipline that into our lives, and that's how we, how we grow. So we need to mark our calendars. We need to mark out our priorities. Our priorities should include God. How are we going to structure our time with the Lord on any, on any given day? Weekends can have a different schedule than weekdays, but that spiritual life is important. Being in Bible class, listening to them, we have to grow. And time with family, your time with your spouse, time with your kids, work. Uh, how much time are you given to work? And, and today it's worse in my whole life. I've never seen, we're all, we got our smartphones and we got our computers and it's, for many people they're on call 24-7. We have to manage that or it will control us. Recreation and exercise. Very important. And if you're younger, you're looking at how do I improve myself, get additional education, additional improvement. And in many places, a good chunk of your day is planned by somebody else. And so we may have only three or four hours of each day that we may think we control. So you have to go to the cleaners and you have to go to the grocery store and you have to go to the bank. And fortunately, we can do a certain amount of that. Uh, on our computers now, and that saves some time. But that's how we redeem the time. It is time that God has allowed it, allotted to us, and if we don't do anything, if we don't control the time, then we're letting the world system control us. So we are to walk wisely, walk circumspectly as wise by redeeming the time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and pray that we might be able to sit down and think about our time and how we use our time and how we structure our time and what our priorities are as believers in terms of our spiritual life, which would be the most important aspect of our life, but it's not always the most urgent and the most demanding. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom that we can figure out how to uh, juggle all of these responsibilities that we have in a way that can bring honor and glory to you and that will not um, torpedo our own spiritual growth and our relationship with you. And that only comes from wisdom and spiritual growth. Father, we outline these these uh, characteristics of a believer who is walking, serving you, we recognize this is not a means of salvation. It's not the means even of our spiritual growth, although parts of it might be. But it is, it is the consequence of our spiritual growth. We need to focus on that spiritual growth. But for those who are not saved, they need to understand what it means to become a believer in Jesus Christ, what it means to have eternal life, what it means to be a new creature in Christ, and that comes by simply trusting in God's promise that Christ died for our sins 
and that in that, by believing in him, we are washed clean, we are forgiven of those of our sins, and that is our new position in Christ. We are forgiven. That doesn't mean we don't sin, so we deal with that with first John one nine and by learning to live and walk and think according to Scripture. Challenge us with these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.